Hi, this is Daniel James, and this is the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The Mission is broadcast live on Triple R each Tuesday evening. Hope you enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website. Good evening. And welcome to episode 0000183 of The Mission. My name is Daniel James. I'm going to be your host through to eight this evening, broadcasting to you from Triple R World Headquarters at the end of the 96 line, which is in East Brunswick, which we know is on the land of the Wurundjeri people of the Kulin Nation. And I pay my respects to the elders past and present and to any mob that are out there listening this evening, because we know that this always was. And always will be Aboriginal land. Thank you to Vaughny, the King of Meredith, for three hours of magnificent music programming and uh, a great interview near the start of the show as well. He'll be back next Tuesday with um, a very, very special thing in the live performance space. So uh, make sure you tune into that. He's got a very big week next week. So come along and support him as much as anything else. Um. Now, forewarning, we have an interesting show, but um, but a heavy show coming up for you over the next hour. Shortly, I'll be joined by Chair of the Aboriginal, former Chair of the Aboriginal Cultural Heritage Advisory Committee in New South Wales, Aunty Glenda Chalker. Aunty Glenda played a pivotal role in having the site of the Appen Massacre recognised as a State Heritage Register listing. It's a further step in the reckoning with the past of this country, whether it be bright or dark. So we'll speak to her about that shortly. And in the second half of the show, we'll be joined by Megan Cracker, social justice advocate um, around things like prison reform and suicide prevention. Read the Volunteer Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project fundraiser for the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project. We know from the latest Closing the Gap report that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people are dramatically overrepresented when it comes to suicide rates and self-harm. So we'll get to all that shortly, but I thought I'd kick the show off tonight by just alerting you to something that happened in Sydney last week, and that relates to the case of a woman called Violet Coco. She was um, sentenced as a climate activist um, for her role in a protest that she conducted in April last year. She was sentenced to 15 months in prison with no opportunity for parole for eight months for her part in a climate protest. And this is what she did. She climbed on top of a roof of a parked truck to stop traffic in one lane of a five-lane motorway inbound on the inbound side of the Sydney Harbour Bridge. She stood there holding a um, lit emergency flare and after about 25 minutes, the police forcibly removed her and other protesters from the road. Now, what she did was illegal, um, but does it warrant a 15-month prison sentence with no parole for eight months? One of the cornerstones of our democracy, we like to think here in Australia, is the right to protest, and the right to protest peacefully. Now, sometimes that causes a bit of mayhem with the city. Sometimes it puts people out. But it's one of the cornerstones of our democracy that we're able to take to the streets and protest for things or against things 
that affect us or people we care about on a personal level. And so the fact that someone has been sent to prison for 15 months for a peaceful act is something that should be concerning to all of us. And I speak about this from, a, an, you know, obviously an Aboriginal perspective. We're hitting the streets every second week protesting against things like death in custody, raise the age, um, a whole range of matters when it comes to closing the gap, etc. And the fact that we have someone who has ostensibly done the same thing and ended up in prison for eight months really, really is concerning. And and I think people have categorised it as her being a, a political prisoner. And I don't think that is an unfair categorisation. She is someone that has protested around uh, climate change, action on climate change, and she's ended up in prison as a result. When um, the New South Wales Premier was asked about it, he said that the outcome of that trial was quite pleasing and that if people are going to go around affecting other people's way of life, whatever that means, then, you know, she deserves to be in prison. Now, this is... <laughs> I know they're a little bit different in New South Wales, and, you know, apologies if you are in New South Wales and listening, but this is a red flag, and you've got to think, well, what, what, where does this end? We know that once uh, governments and authorities get a taste of something, punitive like this, these sorts of things continue to grow in scale. And I know it's designed as a, um, as a warning sign to other protesters not to do what they believe in. But gee whiz, man, if you think about the injustice across the system around a whole range of things, for instance, if you think of all the man babies that uh, uh, climbed to the top of the Westgate Bridge last year and sang horses, basically shutting down an entire city, they will get fines at best, and, you know, rightly so. We have vac- anti-vax groups protesting in the city every week, and they are not being thrown in jail, and nor should they. It is their right to protest. But what happened in New South Wales last week sends a terribly, terribly, terribly strong message to anyone thinking of standing up for what they believe in and hitting the street to not do so. Otherwise, you risk ending up in jail for quite a long time. So it's something that we should be talking about. The mainstream media, in the main, is not reporting on this in any great detail. They seem to be going along with the judge's verdict. And who knows how these decisions are actually really made in the real world. In this case, it was in the court, but what was the prep work done in places like, you know, the Sydney Club or other fossilised drop-in centres where... You know, the powerful and the so-called elites meet and discuss this course of action. So um, remember her name. Her name is Violet Coco. And remember that she is languishing in prison as we speak. There is an appeal, but she's not getting bail for that appeal. So um, make yourself aware of the case and keep keep following it. And making, make sure that you discuss these, th- these things with your friends and your family because this is potentially the thin end of the wedge. Hopefully that won't happen here in Victoria. There are no signs of that to this extent happening in Victoria. But it's something that we must always be uh, vigilant about. 
So uh, we'll get on with the show now. If you want to text in during the program, there is a text line now, 0466981027. Stick around. It's going to be a good show. We'll put out some numbers if it gets a little bit too heavy for you. But this is the mission on 102.7 3RRFM. King Stingray there with Camp Dog, my favourite song off, uh, off their self-titled album. It is 12 past 7. You're listening to The Mission on uh, Triple R 102.7 FM, or maybe you're listening on rrr.org.au. However, you, however you're listening, welcome. Now to tonight's first guest. One of the earliest and most traumatic frontier conflict events between First Nations people and European settlers, the Yappin Massacre, is being recognised through a state heritage register in New South Wales, listed for the first time. It was the site in Appens in southwestern Sydney on the 17th of April 1816 that the Darawal and the Gundagara people were massacred by the British military. Last week, the massacre site was listed on New South Wales State Heritage Register, and one of the people that played a pivotal and tireless role in making sure that we increased awareness around this dark chapter of our history is Auntie Glenda Chalker. Auntie Glenda is a Darawal woman of the Cumbitch Barda clan, meaning white pipe clay plenty, who belonged to the land we largely call the MacArthur area today where the massacre took place. Auntie Glenda is a descendant of the Giribunga, or Nana, who survived the Yappin Massacre in 1816 and the Parramatta Native Institution in 1819. Auntie Glenda has lived on her traditional land her whole life, and she's played a pivotal role in bringing this day to us, and she's on the line with us now. Auntie Glenda, welcome to the mission. Thank you for having me. Not at all. Thank you for coming on. It's a real honour. Um, I guess... The best way for um, for the audience and, and for all of us tonight is to start with the events of the seventeenth of April, eighteen sixteen. What, what tragically and uh, you know criminally went down that day? Well, it had le- it had started with some conflicts between both black and white people, um, mostly over um, Aboriginal people um, taking what was on their country. Um, in the way of corn and other other goods, um, and the settlers retaliated by um, shooting them and all sorts of other horrible things. And so there was payback on both sides, and um, that went on for a while. And Governor Lachlan Macquarie um, actually gave orders and set out three military detachments to pursue and hunt down the natives. And in his orders, he he gave he gave was to strike terror into the natives. And um, if they didn't surrender to um, shoot them, basically, and any women and children that were um, killed in that process um, were to be buried where they lay, basically. So in the early morning hours of the 17th of April, 1816, um, the soldiers came upon a camp in the early hours of the morning, something like 2 o'clock in the morning. And so they moved through the um, the bush and um, in the funeral, at least 14 Aboriginal men, women and children were killed. Um, some were forced over the cataract river pit and um, not all the bodies were counted. There was only 14 counted. So... Um, then after that, 
um, they found the bodies of two of the men in um, in a tree nearby to strike to remind everybody that this would happen to the rest of them if they didn't behave themselves, basically. Yeah, that that sort of tactic was something that was, you know, used by to great effect by you know the Nazis, Nazis, you know, a century and a bit later, and it's something that uh, colonial powers and particularly the British um, sort of perfected um, when they invaded various countries and lands across across the way. Um, what is the? I mean, you've been, you know, you're a descendant of these people. Um, how hard has the struggle been to to get it recognised as, first of all, a formal part of our history, but also now a heritage-listed uh, site? Well, I guess originally we never had access to this place because it was on private property. Mm-hmm. There is a memorial service held every year at the Cataract Dam because that was about as close as what we could possibly get. Um, but it's been sitting there and not been in any danger at all until... Um, the Greater MacArthur Growth Area was set in place by the state government mm-hmm. and the West Appen Precinct particularly uh, would have impacted on um, the massacre site and also the extension of the M9 orbital was clearly going to go through it too. So it, it set, a, set in motion um, me actually moving forward with some way of protecting it. Yeah, because um, it was it was under threat. And it's it's not only important that the, the site itself remains a place of mourning and a place of, of, of sadness, but it's also a really important part of this nation's story that we recognise that these things happened and they happened very early on in our history, Australia's history, the so-called colonial states history. Um, yes, it's um, what what we have actually achieved is um, five separate areas mm-hmm. um, that take in the massacre site. Um, the there is a recorded burial nearby as well, the hanging site, and it also takes in the colonial um, homesteads that were there at the present at that at that particular time. Are they they're still so, in existence? Are they? Yeah, there this one or one isn't, but the site is still there because those people all played some sort of role in that in that history. Yeah. Um, so, not not all of it being bad, but basically afterwards and beforehand. Um, so the culture it's a cultural landscape, and as much as we would have liked to have connected them all up in a like a physical sense the distance between them um, sort of made it uh, a rather erroneous task because you've sort of got some three, at least three kilometres from one site to another site. Yeah, right. So, so they um, have been gazetted in five separate curtilages. Right. And hopefully we can connect them in a physical sense with a pathway or something in the future. Yeah, well, you know, that would make sense because they're, um, you know, forever in time connected. So, you know, having a pathway to connect them would be the next logical step. Um, You've lived on your country all your life, aren't? When did you first become aware of the Appen Massacre? Uh, I didn't grow up being aware of it, I must admit. Mm -hmm. Um, I, I found out about it when I was doing my own 
family history and um, the local reconciliation group at um, Cameltown um, started to have a memorial service every year in honour in honor to remember the people. And that memorial service has grown astronomically to what it started off with just a couple of handful of people in the beginning. So I've, I was born in Camden. I don't live in Camden anymore. My parents still do, but, um, yeah, I live in Wallandilly, which is still all country. You know, there are only physical lines that people have today, but I still live on country today. Yeah, right. And you were the chairperson for the um, Appen Cultural Landscape um, for for a long time. Um, what did that role involve, and and how long how long have we actually been, I guess, trying to to get this site heritage listed? Because you know historically these things move quite slowly. How, how much time went into this? You'd be surprised how quick it actually has happened. Mm-hmm. It's only been a couple of years. And um, it was because of the urgency to protect it against um, this massive development that's going to happen all around it. Right. Well, that's uh, that's refreshing, refreshing to hear. I guess. Yes. <coughs> oh, pardon me. I guess one of the um, things that we know about the the true history of this country too is that what the British have traditionally done here and abroad is get their toehold in a place and then they wait for reinforcements to come before they start, I guess, actively going out and, and committing massacres like this and, and actually, you know, actively start the process of trying to eradicate the First Peoples of, of this land. Is that the sense that you got in terms of the way the, the, the build-up to this event occurred? Um, in 2016, I actually got to read his orders in the Mitchell Library. Mm-hmm. And his orders, as I say, were to strike terror. Um, but nowhere in... And to take children. Yep. This, this was the very beginning of taking children under his under his watch. So to civilise them for servitude, servitude basically. Um, I think... Oh, I lost my train of thought. No, you're right. Uh, we're talking about... Okay. We're talking about, you know, the, sort of like the... the the process that the British undertook yeah, and, the, and the build-up to, to, you know, massacres and other tragic events like this. Sorry about that. No, you're um, right. Yeah, as I said, I read his his diaries, and but nowhere in those in that letter or his orders did it say about decapitating people. Mm-hmm. And we know that there were at least three decapitations, uh, two men that we know the names of, and an, an unknown woman who is probably very closely related to my family mm-hmm. um, and their remains have been returned to Australia from Edinburgh and they are currently being held in the National Museum in Canberra um, prior to repatriation. So the re- actual repatriation process of returning their, their bones and their remains to country hasn't occurred yet? No, it's been held, held in safety the moment. Right, okay. It's, it's actually three skulls. Right, okay. Yeah, yeah it's mm. kind of like the, the, the British colonial playbook 101, isn't it? You know, um, and it's happened to so many other nations across this country as well. Um, are you going to play uh, um, a role in the repatriation, aren't? Are you going to 
are you going to be um, playing an active role in that, or is um, that another process that's aside from what you're doing? No, uh, I hopefully I will play a role, being um, descendant of um, uh, two, at least two of these people. Yeah, um, right. one of them is a, one of them is a Gundungara man, mm-hmm. and um, hopefully we can put them all together. It's not a conversation we've had with the Gundungara people yet, um, but. Yeah, I read the letter that Macquarie sent back to England after this happening happened. Right. What, what, what did that say? Um, he was justifying what had happened, and he said that his orders had been carried out explicitly. Yeah, right. And so what he what he ordered was to strike terror into the population, and that's what he achieved. Yes. Yeah, yes. it's um. It's uh, very, very hard to talk about. Uh, so, Arnie Glender, I thank you very much for uh, for coming on the show and, and talking about it. Um, if people want to find out more about this site and, and more about the people that were murdered on this site and, and the way that it came about, is can you think of a place where we can send people to, to learn more about the true history of this country? Well, at the moment, um, Heritage New South Wales have done a very detailed dossier, uh, which which was done in preparation for the nomination. Yep. Um, and I'm sure there would be something on their website somewhere in regards to it. Um, yeah, there's... The history is, is sort of all over the place, but mm-hmm. I think Heritage New South Wales has done a, a very good job of pulling that together, which is what they had to do in order for it to proceed um, to the minister. Yep. Um, and the minister did come out on site one horrible, wet, rainy, boggy day. But um, yeah, so that was that was good of him to actually come out and see the site too. Yeah. Before before I let you go, I'm, I'm speaking with uh, Arnie Glenda Chalker, who um, was a pivotal in making sure that the Appen Massacre site was uh, listed as a state heritage register up in New South Wales. Um, before I let you go, Aunt, um, you know you've been. Uh, advocating for our people for a long time. Do you sense that there is a change in across the general population in terms of the way people are willing to accept the true history of this country now? Or do you think it's something that we still need to press hard on? I think we still need to press hard on because there are a minority uh, that are believers, but there's still a majority that aren't. And there's a lot of people who don't want to know for whatever reason, um, but I think it's important that they do know because without it, we can't have real reconciliation. That's right. Um, and, and even in the town of Appen itself, there you'd be surprised how many people in Appen don't know what happened at Appen. Yeah, it's a very similar story with a lot of townships and communities down here in Victoria, you know, particularly in the western districts in, in uh, Gippsland where there are, you know, multiple massacre sites and locals either don't know or in some instances don't want to know. So, yeah. Annie Glenda, I thank you so much for the work that you've done over the years and I hope you uh, continue on being the pivotal leader for your people and, and, and bringing true history to this country and we thank you for coming on Triple R tonight. Thank you. Has everybody watched the Australian Wars? That is a truth-telling story on SBS. Yes, we had um, we had um, uh, we had the director on actually um, earlier in the year, um, yes. but that's still online. If you want to watch that, that's still on um, the the uh, pay for not pay for you, but it is on online through the SBS website now. If you want to go back and have a look at that, and that covers yes, I'm that. Actually, 
and you're on that. Yeah, that's right. Well, there's one place you can go if you want to learn more. So head to sbs.org.au to find out more about the frontier wars that happen in this country. Annie Glenda, thank you so much for coming on the show. Thank you very much. And if you write it, or if you don't, I forgave all of my ghosts. The end of a world already broke before it made soon. The history that your brother was speaking of rubbing out of the roads. See, I could be the The Victorian Aboriginal Child Care Agency supports Aboriginal children and families across Victoria. This Christmas, VACA is seeking urgent donations to give presents to children in care and provide extra support for vulnerable families. To make a donation and give joy this festive season, head to vacca.org. VACA. Triple R Sponsors. Why not message the Triple R text line now on 0466 981027. Thank you, Sam. I just wanted to give a number out if you're mobbing or listening to that last story and you were infected or impacted by that and you need to speak to someone. Uh, there is a service called 13 Yarn. Um, it's 139276. 
The number again is 139276. Remember, no matter what you're going through in this world, there is always someone to speak to you. And if you want to contact Lifeline as well, um, that number is seven, uh, 13 11 14, 13 11 14. We thank Aunty Glinda for coming on the show and um, you know sharing what is a very, very, very traumatic story of her people and sharing that with us so that we all understand what this country was built on and what we can learn from that. I'm going to play some, um, a couple of more tunes uh, now. This one is uh, Emma Donovan and the Putbacks. Uh, we'll play that at another track and then we'll come back and speak to our next guest, Megan Cracker. This is the mission. Uncle Kutcher Edwards there with a little bit of love and before that we heard Bars on My Windows by the great, great Thelma Plum. It is 16 to 8 this Tuesday evening. You're listening to The Mission on 102.73 Triple RFM or maybe listening via the National Indigenous Radio Service. Thank you for listening. Um, to our tonight's second guest, the latest Closing the Gap report to the Australian Parliament, uh, which I think was handed down last week or the week before, revealed that we continue to fall behind in a number of targets when it comes to Closing the Gap. One of the targets on the Closing the Gap agenda is Target 14, which states people enjoy high levels of social and emotional well-being. The stated outcome is that Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people enjoy high levels of social and emotional well-being. The target under that outcome is that significant and sustained reduction in suicide of Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people towards zero. Now, on this front, very sadly, we are failing dismally with the suicide rate for First Nations people twice that of the national average at 27.9 per 100,000 versus 12. Suicide has emerged in the past half century as a major cause of premature mortality and is a contribute to the overall health and life expectancy for our Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander peoples. There are a whole range of stats that I can go through um, in relation to this matter. For instance, suicides, suicides accounts for 6% of all Indigenous deaths for people um, compared to 2% for non-Indigenous Australians. Suicide is the second leading cause of death for Indigenous males and suicide is the seventh leading cause for death for Indigenous females. I could go on and on even before we get to youth suicide rates, which sadly 40% of deaths in Indigenous youth aged between 5 to 17 were caused by suicide. 23% of all suicide deaths in youth aged between 5 to 17 were Indigenous in this country. And someone who's worked on the front line to address this appalling disparity is Megan Cracker. Megan is a Menanunga woman from Mount Barker in Western Australia's southwest. She is the director of the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project and also works as a human rights legal practitioner for the National Justice Project. Project. I'm a big fan, so I'm very pleased to say that uh, Megan is on the line with us now. Megan, welcome to the mission. My brother, thank you so much for that. Really appreciate the kind welcome and introduction. No, well, you know, it's the least I can do. Thank you so much for for the for the work that you do. Let's just um, start off before we talk about the scale of the problem. Let's talk about um, the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project, which you're a director of. Uh, what does that project aim to do? Um, it's about radical transformation. Um, that's really quite important. We've mixed it with a lot of people, myself and my colleague, Jerry George Artis. We've mixed it with about 22,000 people right across the country. 
um, working through a knack of issues, whether it's child sexual abuse, domestic violence, child removals, um, incarceration, death in custody. Basically, we work with the most marginalised and vulnerable cohort. We, there's, it's a three-stage approach. That is the assertive outreach, the 24-7 and the intense psychosocial support. But be, with that comes the love and the care and the respect and, you know, the, the radical empathy for people's challenges in life. The reality is this. The majority of our people fall below the poverty line in Western Australia, and that's 60%. So we have a lot of people that are begging for food, begging to have their children back, begging for proper legal representation, begging for a whole range of issues, including housing and so forth. This is the reality. I just heard you mention about the suicide crisis, which is happening right across the country. Mm. You go back about 10 years ago, it was one in 23 First Nations people. Now it's down to one in, one in 16. That's within a 10-year period. Yeah. So in terms of closing the gap, incarceration, suicide, child removals has widened even further. So that's really quite catastrophic. In the sense of the National Suicide Prevention Trauma Recovery Project, we go into homes, we go into hospitals, we're on the streets there. And basically it's that human love and working through people's issues in a very expert but loving manner and something which is very skillful. And it's the front line of the front line when it comes to these come to these matters. Um, it seems to me that at the moment, Megan, that there is so much happening in Western Australia alone that could, um, you know, keep an organisation or a project like yours um, so, so, so busy. Um, yeah. Added to that, we're approaching, we're approaching what is traditionally a very uh, dangerous and tragic time of year where we see a spike in numbers heading towards uh, Christmas. What, what are you seeing on the, on the streets and in the homes of people over there in relation to their social and emotional wellbeing? Lack of hope, mental health issues, um, overcrowded housing, people dying on streets, uh, when people have passed away sadly and tragically, lack of support. I mean, it's just really, really terrible and hard times, and that's very much thematic right across the country. Yeah. But in terms of Western Australia, we have the, like right across the country, there are the 132 pastoral estates. We know that 17 new detention centres exist. We have one in Western Australia that's the notorious Banksia Hill. In terms of Banksia Hill, for many one time, there could be 70 to 160 kids. We are approaching the elevated risk period of suicide, and that's always around the Christmas period. But today, it's quite... It's, it's ridiculous. It's really quite ludicrous. The state government, Mr McGowan, has said that he wants to... Uh, well, two children from Banksy Hill as a result of a riot, he's suing them. He wants to see two kids. One's actually in jail as it is right now for $350,000 each. I mean, I've never seen that done in this no. country. It's, 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 out, it's outrageous. And it's, it and it's, and it's the, the, the leadership of the state and the system of the state ensuring that those kids have no opportunity beyond prison once they get out. If they have to confront well, something like this, what opportunities do they have to lead a better life? Well, that's exactly right. I mean, Jerry Georgiatis, he was absolutely incredible. We had to, we had to debate the, uh, the crisis in relation to the 
um, people going into prison system. And the incarceration crisis, if I can be honest, we know that 60 to 70 per cent go on into adult prisons. That's the reality. But what um, Jerry with the class action, speaking with Stuart Levitt, um, Levitt Robinson, basically they're the ones that have seen the state of Queensland for the people of Palm Island won the $30 million. Um, there was a class action. There still is a class action. And today we've got about 650 people that's part of that class action. So we were digging hard in the trenches with the families, raising the, um, raising the issues, educating the nation, educating the state, just in terms of the failures. Now it's actually got so much momentum where Mr McGowan believes that he's got no other option other than to see two children who have been in the bank Hill. It's ludicrous. Shame on him. Absolute shame. And another thing that uh, Mark McGowan said too, and this is in relation to um, another campaign that's um, you know gaining momentum across the country and that we've covered on this show on a couple of occasions, and that's the Raise the Age campaign. He, he came out and said that under no circumstances in Western Australia would they raise the age of criminal um, responsibility. So this... This is the this is the kind of regime that you're living under over there, Megan. It must be uh, not only terribly frustrating, but it must, also must be frightening for First Nations people. Oh, it's a very. This government is leading by dictatorship and tyranny. It's either his way or the highway. We're saying have that human focus in terms of put a new lens in. Comes from a human rights perspective. Treat these children as you would treat your own. The mere fact is the majority of children in Banksy Hill and also Unit 18 and Unit 18, that's Casarina Prison, where 17 children, they were transferred there on the 20th of um, July and there was 12 with nine disabilities. Mm-hmm. What we're saying is about having that restorative approach, helping these children because the children will come back in the community and we need to do it in such a way where we can help and support their families in ways that we know how the ways that work best for Aboriginal people who aren't engaged with the service, that actually are frightened of the service. So it's really quite horrific with what's being perpetrated against Aboriginal people in Western Australia. But I must say this, 37% of those kids in Banksy Hill Unit 18 are non-Indigenous. So this is not just a black issue. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a broader issue than that, even though there is significant um, representation. It is eight, uh, six to uh, eight. Uh, you're listening to The Mission. I'm Daniel. I'm speaking with Megan Cracker from the uh, Centre... Well, yes, for the, from the Centre for Best Practice in Torres Strait Islander Suicide Prevention, but that is a stat that we quoted. But uh, Megan herself is from... The, uh, sorry, I've absolutely drawn a blank. That's all right, my brother. It's a long one. It's okay. It's a National Suicide, national suicide. Trauma Recovery yeah. Project, but we do we have many hats. Bottom line is we work for community unfunded. Now, the important thing, Megan, is that um, the, the, the project itself is totally volunteer-based, isn't it? That's exactly right. So we've managed to get $70,000 from the Noongar Charitable Trust, and we've employed a couple of people on a part-time basis. But the last three and a half years, it's been a volunteer effort. And what we've been doing is elevating the deficit discourse because if you don't know about something, you can't fix it. And it's about having the lived experience involved and being part of it so they have the opportunity to raise their voice. The bottom line is we have too many people talking about us without us and now people can tell their own stories and speak with their um, 
with what's going on in their personal circumstance. hundred percent. And there is actually a, a fundraiser now to, to raise money for the project. It's raised twenty three thousand three hundred and sixty two dollars so far and is aiming to raise fifty two thousand dollars. If you want to contribute to this volunteer based organisation that is trying to save lives of Indigenous youths, but more broadly youths generally at risk of suicide um, and various other traumas. Um, the best website that I can find that you can head to is chuffed.org. It's C-H-U-F-F-E-D.org. And if you do a search for the Volunteer Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project, you'll come across it there. Um, you know, all donations are uh, tax deductible, and it's a wonderful, wonderful cause. Um, while Thank I've got you. you, while I've got you, Megan, um, you had a small win, a very, very small win, but a significant win when it came to the Banksia Youth Detention and the way that they restrain um, children there. Uh, could you just tell us briefly about that before uh, we we'll let yeah, you go and enjoy not- the rest of your afternoon? Oh, it's always a pleasure. Remember, you one who can keep yarning all night if you like. Oh, I love yeah, to. <laughs> no, I'm not. <laughs> um, <basically laughs> so, you know, it was a small step in the right direction. So, in Banksy Hill, since that that, that was opened up in 1997, we've had 10,000 people that have gone through there, black, white, and brown. Some are no longer here to tell their stories. Some are now actually suicided, and we have had over 100 people as soon, soon as I've left custody, have suicided in Western Australia. Now, that's an absolute indictment of the state and it's an indictment of the federal government to not ensure that they're properly supported. So my colleague, Jerry George Artis, he spoke with Four Corners about a year ago and so we knew that this was going to happen in Western Australia. Now, in terms of Four Corners, they did go to Darwin. They spoke to the people of Dondale. They went to Broome. They went to Derby in Western Australia. And then when they came down to Perth, we made sure, and Four Corners are absolutely amazing, that there were two grandmothers, a mother and three children, and they spoke. And the way that they spoke was with so much conviction and passion and, and pride, but also they spoke the truth. And as a result, that particular restraint has been now um, is this phasing out of the prison system. So that's a good thing. I'm not, I'm not too sure what kind of restraint that they will use mm-hmm. going forward, but in terms of that particular one, it, has, it will be phased out. Um, what they replace it with, I have no idea, but I don't trust this West Australian state government, and they may, in fact, replace it with something which is way more tenuous and arduous than something which, which is really extremely hurtful. But one thing that I will say, and I have spoken to the Inspector Custodial Services, writing report after report after report, why was that not aired in his report when he'd gone out to Banksy Hill? Why did it take the four corners to drop that story Interesting point. and let the children actually speak to it? Because what's happening is that the people who's been impacted, they're not being listened to. They're not even at the table. So that's really quite frustrating. So the thing is, and what I keep saying, if the people have been impacted, if they're not part of the table, table conversation, if they're not forefronted at the at the conversation, how can we change it? I'm sick of being spoken about without, and that's the same message with our people right across this country. Last thing I'll say, 40% of our people fall below the poverty line across the country. In Western Australia, it's 60%. In the Northern Territory, it's 80%. In terms of child removal, in 1997, the Bringing Them Home report, there was 2,000 black kids in care. Mr. Mr. Rudd, in 2008, the apology to the Solon generation, 8,000 black kids in care. 
today there is 23,000 black kids in care. So it's gone from one in three to one in two because overall, throughout the country, there's 46,000 kids in care. Of that, 23 black. That's unacceptable. It is unacceptable and it's a national travesty. And if you want to donate to the National Suicide Prevention and Trauma Recovery Project, head to chuffed.org, C-H-U-F-F-E-D.org. I'll put that in the interview that I'll put up online um, from this conversation. Thanks for listening to the podcast of Triple R's The Mission, a weekly radio show exploring the issues that impact the lives of Aboriginal people and those at the wrong end of social justice in this country. The mission is broadcast live on Triple R every Tuesday evening. Hope you've enjoyed the podcast and feel free to get in touch via the Triple R website.